you have a Bible, take it out. Find 1 John chapter 4. We're going to jump right in with the overarching purpose of 1 John, which for many of you is becoming familiar. At least I hope it's becoming familiar. John wrote this letter so that believers could have certainty about their relationship with Jesus. And we pulled that big overarching purpose straight out of 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, that says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John is assuming that we already believe in Jesus. He's not, in this letter, trying to convince us to believe in Jesus. He assumes we believe, and he's writing so that we can know something. And what he wants us to know and have certainty about and have assurance about and have confidence about is the fact that we have eternal life because we believe in Jesus. So to get us to that point of knowledge and confidence and assurance, John gives us tests. And in the book of 1 John, there's three main tests, a moral test, a social test, and a Christological test. The moral test is, do you keep God's commandments? And it's not a test. None of these are tests where we take the test, we pass the test to earn our salvation, but they're tests that when we pass them give us confidence and certainty about our salvation. So the moral test, do you keep God's commandments? The social test, do you love your brother? Do you love other believers? The Christological test, do you believe and do you abide in the truth about Jesus Christ. And one of the things we've seen in 1 John is that he writes in circles. He brings something up and he moves on and then he circles back and he keeps hitting the same ideas and as he circles back around, he gives us a different emphasis or a different thought on the same big idea and we're going to see that this morning with the Christological test. I want you to understand that this last test, the Christological test, is tricky and it's tricky because false teachers are a reality. The reality of false teachers make this test tricky. And I just want to put this idea on the table before we begin. God's people have always had to deal with false teachers, and God's people will always have to deal with false teachers. This is not a new problem, and this is not a problem that's going away anytime soon. In fact, it's not going to go away until Jesus returns. I'll just give you a few scriptural examples to think through. Deuteronomy 13, Moses is leading the the new generation into the promised land. Their parents were brought out of Egypt. He's about to cross over. He's about to watch them cross over into the promised land, and he stops to warn them about false prophets. He wants them to know, when I'm gone, when I'm not with you, there will be false prophets, and this is how you need to handle them. Jeremiah 23 The prophet Jeremiah pronounces woe on the shepherds who are leading God's people astray. These teachers who are are saying false things about the God of Israel. He proclaims a woe on them. Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says false prophets, false teachers will come. He tells his disciples, don't be surprised by it, but expect it. Galatians 1, the apostle Paul pronounces anathema. He pronounces a curse on anyone who would preach a different gospel than the gospel that he preached. 2 Peter 2, the apostle Peter says, false teachers will come and they will bring destructive heresies. In other words, this is not all fun and games. The teaching that these false prophets, false teachers bring are actually destructive. They destroy God's people. Jude, 
says false teachers will come, not waving a flag, not telling you that they are false teachers, but they will sneak in, they will creep in unnoticed if possible. This is not a new problem, and it's not a problem that's going away. And when you think about the fact that there are all sorts of people, some of them false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing, talking about Jesus, it makes the Christological test tricky. It's tricky because of false teachers. It's also tricky because of something that John describes as antichrist. We talked about this a few weeks ago. John is the only New Testament author who actually uses the word antichrist. We saw it twice in 1 John chapter 2. We'll see it once in our passage this morning. You find it again in 2 John. Literally the word antichristos means one who stands against Christ, one who stands in defiance to Christ, one who stands in opposition to Christ. It can also mean one who puts up a substitute Christ, one who puts himself in the place of Christ. And there's certainly a biblical idea of what we might term big A Antichrist, the Antichrist, an end times apocalyptic figure who sets himself against Jesus and against his church. There's also a concept, and this is what John is driving home, there's a concept of little a antichrists. Not the big a antichrist, but little a antichrists. John's going to tell us, you've heard that they're coming, they're already here. And he connects it with the idea of false teachers. Some of this becomes clear as we work our way through the passage. That's the goal this morning. Just start in verse 1 and work our way through. Here's the big idea of 1 John 4, 1 to 6. The Christological test requires us to make a distinction. And the distinction that we're making with this test is between two groups of people. There's those who are from God, and there's those who are of the world. Some people are from God, some people are of the world, and John draws a line right down the middle and he splits them in two. One of the things you should think about when you study the Bible and you're looking for these big ideas, you should think about repetition. Okay, this is a short passage. Six times in this passage, John uses the phrase, from God. Six times. Listen for it when we read. And six times in this passage, he uses the phrase, the world. Listen as we read. He's repeating these ideas so that we pay attention. It catches our attention and we say, okay, I think he's making a distinction between two two groups of people, those who are from God and those who are of the world. And you remember in the world, in the book of 1 John, it's not just the earth. It's not just the people who live on the earth but it's fallen humanity and rebellion against God. There are people who are from God. They've been born again. They've been purchased by Jesus, bought by Jesus, and transferred into his kingdom. And there are people who are of the world. And John uses the Christological test as the dividing line. So take your copy of the scriptures. Let's read 1 John 4, verse 1 to verse 6. Scripture says this, Beloved, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. 
By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Little children, you are from God and you have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. That's the word of God for us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for the Bible that you have spoken to us clearly. We're thankful for the book of 1 John and for these tests and for a book in the Bible that is meant and intended to give us certainty and assurance and confidence about the fact that we truly have eternal life in Jesus. Lord, as we think about this Christological test this morning, there are ideas in this passage that are completely contrary to the spirit of this age, the wisdom of this world, the things that we're taught. Lord, we pray for ears to hear what your word is saying to us. We pray for hearts that would be receptive to your word, even when it may not be popular in our time, in our day, in our culture, in our context. Lord, and we pray for lives that would reflect not just the truthfulness of your word, but the goodness of your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks back, 1 John chapter 2, we talked about the Antichrist. One of the things I mentioned is that throughout church history, God's people have done an awful lot of worrying about the identity of the big A Antichrist. I'm not suggesting to you that's not something that we should talk about and think about. I'm just telling you we have done a lot of thinking about it. We are not the first people in the United States in the year 2020 to wonder, is this it? Is this the end? Could the Antichrist be coming? Christian people have literally been asking themselves that question all the way back to the beginning of the church. During the Protestant Reformation, many of the reformers questioned and floated the idea, and some of them simply asserted the idea that the Pope was the Antichrist. Some of them said maybe the Pope is little a Antichrist, but some of them very clearly said, no, the Pope is the big A Antichrist, the end times apocalyptic figure who would set himself up in a a position against Christ and defy God's people. People believe that is the Antichrist. Many of us lived through Y2K. I was in high school, and I remember in my hometown, many pastors speculating, Y2K is coming. We think the Antichrist is coming with him. Fortunately, in my home, we were prepared. My mom was a prepper. We had bottles of water and batteries, and how that was going to help us against the Antichrist, I have no idea, but we were ready, batteries and water. The European Union, when the European Union was formed, lots of people speculated, oh, look, it's a, it's a one-world thing. We're moving in that direction. The Antichrist must be right around the corner. You can get on Google today. You can find people who would have claimed that Barack Obama was the Antichrist. You can find people today that would claim Donald Trump is the Antichrist. We've thought a lot about who the Antichrist might be. 
I came across a news story just this week from Russia. There is an ultra-conservative Russian Orthodox priest named Sergei. There he is, Father Sergei. And he has seized his monastery. He's taken control of his monastery uh, with military force. He's holed up in this monastery. He's making all sorts of demands and all sorts of claims, among which is the claim, the prophecy, the prediction that the big A Antichrist is about to be revealed in Russia, and this big A Antichrist will set himself in opposition to Russian President Vladimir Putin. You see this sort of stuff all throughout church history, a complete obsession with and fascination with and fear of who the big A Antichrist might be. Just this week, searching online in news stories, I found the big A Antichrist connected to 5G internet, microchips in your pets, apps on your phone, and every hiccup that happens in the Middle East. I mean, all sorts of things. We're like jumpy people. Antichrist, Antichrist, Antichrist. We're looking, we're waiting, we're speculating. All the while, we're virtually ignoring the little a Antichrists. John says, you've heard they're coming, they're already among us. I think it's a tactic of the enemy himself. If he can get us to focus and be so fearful about the big A Antichrist, we completely lose focus on the fact that even now we're dealing with many little a Antichrists. Now, I'm not telling you to pick one or the other. I'm saying let's walk and chew gum. Let's think about the Antichrist, but let's be very aware that the little a Antichrists are already among us. That's what John is doing in this passage, and he connects it with the Christological test. Look at verse 1. John gives his readers a two-part command. And I told you there's not a lot of commands in 1 John, not many imperatives. There are two of them in 1 John 4, verse 1. Look at the verse. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. The blanks on your notes are super easy to figure out. The command, the two-part command, number one, do not believe every spirit. That's a command from John. Don't believe every spirit. The flip side of that command, equally a command, test the spirits. He's commanding God's people. This is an imperative. Don't believe every spirit. Test the spirits. And then he explains why it's so important. He says many false prophets have gone out into the world. It's not what you would expect him to say at the back part of verse 1. When he says don't believe every spirit, test the spirits, you expect him to say many spirits have gone out into the world. It's not what he says. Don't believe every spirit. Test the spirits because many false prophets, many false teachers have gone out into the world. Here's how you make sense of verse 1. In John's mind, there is a connection between these spirits. We don't believe them all. We test them. And the false teachers who have gone out. There's a connection between the spirits and the false teachers. We kind of understand this when we think about the Holy Spirit. One of the things the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit points people to Jesus. 
The Holy Spirit promotes people who preach the truth about Jesus. The Holy Spirit empowers God's people as they abide in the truth about Jesus. And we say, okay, there's an unseen Spirit, the Holy Spirit, pointing people towards Jesus. Here's what John also believes, and this flies in the face of our prevailing worldview. John believes there are also unseen spirits, evil spirits, who promote lies about Jesus, who animate false teaching and false preaching about Jesus. And in John's mind, even though you can't see those evil spirits, they're as real as the Holy Spirit. And so he says, look, don't believe every spirit. Test the spirits. That doesn't mean you try to have a seance and get in touch with the spirit world. That means you listen to teachers and preachers and you don't believe all of them. You test them because you know many false prophets have come and there's a spirit behind that spiritual message. You say, but I heard it on Family Life Radio. You got to test it. You say, well, I heard it on K-Love. You got to test it. You say, well, that thing that I saw on Facebook was from a preacher. You got to test it. You say, well, I bought it on the bestseller shelf at Mardell. By all means, you got to test it. You say, I heard it at Emmanuel Baptist Church from the bald guy standing on the platform. You got to test it. Don't believe every spirit. Test the spirits. Why? Because many false teachers have gone out into the world. I want you to see a connection between, there's a lot of connections. I want you to see a connection between 1 John 4 and 1 John 2. Look at 1 John 2.18. John says, many antichrists have come. Little a antichrists. Many little a antichrists have come. You can draw a line all the way to 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, where he says, many false prophets have gone out into the world. That's how these little a antichrists show up in our lives. They show up in the teaching and the preaching of false prophets. Many antichrists, many false teachers. These false teachers are preaching what John might call satanic sermons. You know what a satanic sermon sounds like? It does not sound like a preacher telling you to worship the devil. That's not what it sounds like. You'd catch that in a flash. A satanic sermon talks a lot about Jesus. It probably talks more about you than Jesus, but Jesus is included. And it probably says some true things about Jesus. It probably quotes Bible verses at some point in the message, at some point in the sermon. But subtly and carefully, the lies sneak in. These spirits promote something that's not quite true about Jesus. Not too much, but just enough that you take it in without discernment. And so John says, look, this is a tricky test. You can't believe all the spirits. You can't believe all the teachers. You've got to test the spirits. You've got to test the teachers. And he lays out the standard in verse 2 and 3. This standard is telling us it's not really a question of do you believe in Jesus? It's really a question of what do you believe about Jesus? 
in the Bible Belt, we settle for, do you believe in Jesus far too easily? When we ask somebody, hey, do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, I believe in Jesus. Great, I do too. John says, that's, that's not really enough. The real question is, what is it that you actually believe about Jesus? And he lays it out in verse 2 and 3. He gives his readers the standard of the Christological test. And he talks about two pieces of Christology, two doctrines relating to Jesus. The first one is this, Jesus is the Christ. The second one is this, he came in the flesh. Jesus is the Christ who came in the flesh. Look at verse 2. John talks about every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. That is not a first and a last name. That's not like Mark Dawson or Corey Spear or Mason Harrington or Christian Akins, Jesus Christ. That's not first and last name. That is name, Jesus, title, Christ. It's a theological claim about who Jesus is. This is Jesus of Nazareth, and he is the Christ. This is a non-negotiable element if you're going to pass this test. Look what John says, 1 John 2, 22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. If you deny Jesus is the Christ, John says, inspired by the Holy Spirit, you're a liar. If you do not teach that he is the promised, anointed Christ, the Messiah, the one God promised to send to set all things right and to redeem God's people from their sins, John says you're a liar if you don't believe that, if you don't abide in that truth. He also talks about Jesus coming in the flesh. 1 John 4, verse 2, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. This makes me think of a basic truth about Jesus. Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14, The Word became flesh and he dwelt among us. The Word, the eternal, preexistent, creating Word of God who was with God in the beginning and who was God in the beginning, who created everything that exists, he took on flesh. He became flesh. God became man to redeem sinful human beings. He became one of us because we need one of us to live for us and to die for us. If you deny that, if you try to cut out Christmas from the story of Jesus, if you try to hold on to Christianity without the doctrine and the miracle of the incarnation, you fail the Christological test. That's how John lays it out here. Then he says something shocking. He says, if you deny these truths, you are in league with Antichrist. That's shocking for people who live in 2020. John says you're either abiding in these truths or you're actually in league with Antichrist. 1 John 4, verse 2 and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus, if you deny that he's the Christ and you deny that he came in the flesh, that spirit is not from God. It's the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, is now in the world already. You deny the truth about Jesus, you're in league with the Antichrist. How does that settle on people who live in the United States in 2020? Not well. 
not well. Bible scholar Ray Van Nest is right. He wrote a commentary on 1 John. He says, this flies in the face of much modern Western Christianity, which seems to think that sincerity is all that matters and doctrinal distinctives are insignificant if one means well. That's sort of the spirit of our age. Are you sincere in what you believe, whatever it is you might believe? And do you have good intentions? Do you mean well? And I think the Apostle John would echo Ray Van Nest and say, sincerity is not enough to pass the doctrinal test. Good intentions are not enough to pass this Christological, this theological test. The question is, do you hold to the truth about Jesus. Now, I want to make one point, one little caveat here. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, there's more than one way to skin a cat? I put that in my notes this week, and this morning I actually started thinking about the phrase itself, and I thought, who was doing all the cat skinning that somebody invented this catchphrase, there's more than one way to skin a cat? But apparently people were skinning cats, and they realized there's more than one way to do it. More than one way to skin a cat. What does that have to do with 1 John? In 1 John 4, John talks about two pieces of Christology. He talks about Jesus being the Christ and Jesus come in the flesh. I think it's likely that John, when he wrote this book, knew specific false teachers who were specifically saying he's not the Christ And he didn't really come in the flesh or some combination of those two. And so when he starts to talk about the Christological test, he's not talking about hypothetical things people might say about Jesus. He's talking about things people are actually saying about Jesus. He's not the Christ. He didn't come in the flesh. And John just lays it out. He draws a line down the middle and he says, look, you can be on the side of truth or you can be a liar. You can be with the spirit of God or you can be with the spirit of Antichrist. And he talks about these two specific biblical, theological, Christological truths. I think if John were to walk in the room this morning and preach a sermon based on his own writing, I think he would say, you know there's more than one way to skin a cat. And you know there's more than two ways to lie about Jesus. These are two. You can deny that he's the Christ and you can deny that he came in the flesh. But there are other ways you can lie about Jesus. People do it every day. People invoke the name of Jesus, and at the same time, they deny what the Bible says about who he is. Happens every day. Happens every Sunday in churches. You can invoke the name of Jesus and even pledge allegiance to Jesus, and you can deny and tell a lie about what Jesus accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. It's blasphemous, but you can do it. You can invoke the name of Jesus and tell people you are Christian and you believe in Jesus and you can listen to Jesus' teaching and find it unpalatable and you can find ways to reject it and ignore it. There's a lot of ways to lie about Jesus. Two of them are mentioned here. Denying that he's the Christ, denying that he came in the flesh, There's more than one way to skin a cat. There's more than two ways to lie about Jesus. I want you to look at verse 4. Verse 4 is kind of like a pivot. 
in our paragraph. It starts with the phrase little children. That's one of those terms of endearment. We've seen a bunch of them. There's one up in verse 1, beloved. Verse 4, little children. John's writing as a pastor, as a fatherly figure. He cares about his readers. And in verse 4, there's sort of a hinge. There's sort of a shift in the discussion. It's not so much about warning as it is describing people who are from God and not of the world. What do those people look like? What do the people look like who would pass the Christological test? John tells us. The first thing he tells us is that God's people overcome false teachers. That's one of their characteristics. That's how you could describe them. That's what you can expect to see in their life. God's people overcome false teachers. Verse 4, little children, you are from God and you have overcome them. Who's the them? Well, it's these spirits that are coming, and we're not going to believe them all. We're going to test them. It's the many false teachers, the many false prophets who have come. John says, if you are from God, you overcome those spirits and those false teachers. How do we do it? If you continue in verse 4, John says, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, meaning God's people experience the presence of God. That's how we overcome the false teachers. It's not that we're smarter or more clever or more attractive in our teaching or our preaching. It's that we have the Spirit of God abiding in us. Overcome the false teachers. We experience the presence of God. I just want you to note again John the master theologian stringing together Trinitarian themes all the way through this book. Think about one of the parallels from 1 John 2 to 1 John 4. I told you there were several of them. Look at 1 John 2.23 in your Bible. It says, no one who denies the Son has the Father. No one who denies the Son has the Father. To deny the truth about God the Son means that you don't have access to God the Father. The emphasis in chapter 4 is not on God the Father, but it's on God the Holy Spirit. And to deny the truth about God the Son means that you are devoid of, of God the Holy Spirit. It's a Trinitarian view of God and it's a Trinitarian view of salvation. Jesus is the hinge. What do you say about Jesus? That's why we've called it the Christological test. Do you believe that he's a Christ? Do you believe that he came in the flesh? Do you believe that he's the promised Savior that God sent? And do you believe that God became man so that he could live for us and die for us? If you believe that, You have access to God the Father, and you enjoy the presence of the Holy Spirit. But if you deny the truth about God the Son, you don't have access to God the Father. You don't have access to the Holy Spirit. It's a Trinitarian picture of who God is. One last description of people who are from God. God's people listen to apostolic teaching. That's my word to describe what John is saying here, and I want you to see it in the text. God's people listen to apostolic teaching. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, they, who's the they? Well, it's these spirits who have come and these false teachers. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. A message from the world will always have an audience in the world. Don't be surprised. I saw a tweet this week. It's from one of the most famous pastors in the United States. 
it was completely blasphemous in just about five words. And people were sharing it and liking it, and I just thought to myself, how does this have an audience? It is so patently against everything that the Bible says. How is it that people like this stuff? And then I read this verse. They speak from the world. Of course the world listens to them. It's a message from the world. It will always have an audience in the world. Verse 6, we are from God. You see the contrast? We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Verse 6, we, us, us, we. We, us, us, we. John's talking about the apostolic community. He's talking about those who are teaching the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Not these new so-called apostles, not these false apostles and prophets and teachers, but those who are abiding in the truth once for all delivered to the saints. Is that what you're listening to? You say, how do I do that? John's been dead a long time. You listen to John by listening to the scriptures. You listen to the faith once for all delivered to the saints by lining up as closely as you can to the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient word of God. Think about a band. Can you imagine a band of musicians who get together to play music and they all decide that they will play a particular song in their favorite key. Sometimes that happens on Sunday mornings. You don't ever experience it in worship. All the kinks have been worked out, but sometimes the band comes in to rehearse and we're playing a song that we've played before, but maybe a a different person is singing and so Jake says, hey, we're gonna play it in a different key and sometimes one of the band members won't notice that and they kick off playing this song And I usually sit right there about six rows back on the inside aisle, and I'm thinking, ooh, this ain't good. Something ain't right. Corey is not playing in the right key. Somebody is not playing in the right key. I mean, it's not what you want to listen to. You can imagine a band where the the lead guitarist said, well, I'm going to play in A, and the pianist said, well, I want to play in F, and the bass player said, well, I'm going to play in H, the drummer's playing in cue or something like that. Nobody knows what the drummer's doing. It's just a mess. It's a train wreck. Nobody wants to listen to that. Listen, as a church family, we don't gather together to just sort of sit in a big kumbaya circle and share our ignorance and say, well, this is what I think about it, and that's what you think about it, and how do you feel about it? Well, this is how I feel about it. We gather together as a church family, and we gather together to get as close to this book as we possibly can. Not to argue with this book, not to question this book, not to come with a, an approach of suspicion towards this book, but to believe it, to accept it, to submit to it. That's why we usually preach expository sermons rather than me or Hunter or Corey or whoever getting up and stringing together a bunch of verses that we can use to make our point about something, we just pick a text and we just plow through it. 
And we say, we've got to understand it. All the parts, all the words, all the phrases, we've got to make sense of what's here. And your job is to test it. Not just to be spoon-fed. It's not just to think, well, pastor said it. It's not to believe everything you hear. It's to test what you hear and to see, does it line up with what God says about his son, Jesus the Christ, who came in the flesh to save us? Does it line up with that? That's how you pass the Christological test. It's not by inventing your own thoughts about Jesus, but it's by lining up with what the Bible has to say about Jesus. That's how you overcome false teachers. It's not by having a, a better social media platform so that you can out-tweet the heretics or outshare the heretics. It's just by lining up with the scriptures. That's how the people of God have a relationship with God the Father. It's not by coming any old way that we want to come, but it's by coming through Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. No one will come to the Father but through him. That's how you and I enjoy the presence of God in our lives, the Holy Spirit. It's not by coming to church and the band plays all in the same key and they hit the high notes at the right point and you sort of get a chill up your spine. That's not experiencing the Holy Spirit. It's getting as close as you can to the truth, the biblical truth about Jesus the Christ who came in the flesh. That's ultimately how you make this distinction that John's talking about between those who have been born of God, they're from God, and those who are still of the world.